Welcome to Honey and Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. And right now we're doing Read the Reviews. This one is called Amazingly Helpful Podcast. Robin is an amazing and dynamic interviewer. Whether you're a traditional homeschooler, unschooler, or eclectic in your approach, there is a podcast for you. Robin's podcasts are full of supportive, insightful, and helpful information. The podcast episodes are just long enough that they can be included in the busiest of days. The library is extensive, so there is something to help everyone on this treasured journey to home educate with confidence. Take a listen. Thank you for that review. And also, we'd just like to say thank you for everyone who's left a review. It really helps the podcast, and we really do appreciate it. Now, let's move on to the intro. Who did you interview in this episode? Thank you, Zara, as always. I interviewed Blake Bowles in this episode. And why did you interview him? Well, if you don't already know Blake Bowles, he has been on my podcast another time. But this time, the second time, I'm so happy to have him on again because he has a new book. And the book is called, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? The Case for Helping Them Leave, Chart Their Own Paths, and Prepare for Adulthood at Their Own Pace. And so I wanted to talk to Blake about his book. And why was it so important to have him back on the podcast because of his book? That's actually a really good question. Uh, I think, number one, I mean, the title is pretty catchy, and I think it is an interesting title and time to release this book, especially after we've just had full closures pretty well throughout the world. Uh, so it's um, it's creating an interesting dynamic in education. But as well in this book, we talked about actually how this book is not about how to reform the education system. It's specifically geared towards those who are already planning to um, leave the education system or to look for an alternative or that need an alternative. So we discussed the book and things like the practical options that he offers to parents in the book to try something other than traditional school. Uh, We also talked about the theme of nature versus nurture, how much influence do parents really have over our kids and over defining who they become as adults? Uh, we talked about college, going on to college and university. We also talked about why it can be hard for those that choose the alternative path, why it's actually not always the easy thing to do. You're really stepping out of the norm. And also, of course, the main theme about self-knowledge and for parents investing in building up trust with their kids and the importance of this in self-directed learning, alternative paths, or unschooling. So we hope you enjoy this episode and we'd love to hear what value it gave you. And if you find that the podcast gives you value and you would like to continue helping and supporting the show, you can do so through Patreon by becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash honey, I'm homeschooling the kids. We really appreciate your support. And if Patreon is just not your thing, you can always leave us a review on iTunes. We absolutely appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. 
And don't forget to follow my mom on Instagram, Facebook, and check out her website at Honey Homeschooling the Kids. Enjoy the episode! So today I have Blake Bowles joining me on the show once again for the second time. Thank you very much, Blake, for coming on today. Thanks for having me again, Robin. It is my pleasure. Blake Bowles is a writer, speaker, adventurer, and advocate for self-directed learning. He has spent more than a decade working with unconventionally educated teenagers through the trip-leading company he founded, Unschool Adventures. Originally from California, Blake has lived and traveled across the world. His previous books include The Art of Self-Directed Learning, Better Than College, and College Without High School, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Christian Science Monitor, Psychology Today, Fox Business, USA Today, NPR Affiliate Radio, and the blogs of Wired and the Wall Street Journal. He was born in 1982. You can visit him at blakebowles.com to follow Blake's work and adventures. So, welcome. <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> so, if you can um, just tell a little bit more about yourself, I know more a little bit of your story, but maybe you can, if you can give some background, how did you yeah. get into self-directed learning? Like, were you unschooled, homeschooled? How how did this eventually all fit together for you in your life? Sure, uh, I was not homeschooled, unschooled, alternative schooled, anything schooled aside from public schooled in California. And I went straight into college. I went to UC Berkeley to study astronomy and physics because I thought I wanted to be a research scientist. And about halfway through that major is when I realized that science was not really the right fit for me. I, I didn't have a taste for the physics and math when it got to the, the more serious levels of it. And so I was thinking about becoming a high school science teacher. And that's when I discovered John Taylor Gatto. And I read one of his books. He's the New York City former school teacher who won all the awards and then started writing critically about the school system. And, and I just devoured one of his books in a few days and quickly went down the rabbit hole of alternative education and started reading about unschooling and democratic free schools. And uh, I was convinced. I thought this is way more important than studying the physics of far-off galaxies. And so I ended up designing my own major to study alternative education full-time. So I still graduated, but with uh, the least marketable degree that UC Berkeley has ever offered, which is alternative schooling and science education. And I went to go work in the outdoor education field for a few years, which was fun. It was kind of like doing summer camp year-round. But uh, eventually I, I found my way to not back to school camp and became a staff member there. And that's where I got to meet a big number of flesh and blood teenage unschoolers. And man, that was highly inspiring. That, that was a pivotal moment in my life, just as pivotal as reading Sean Taylor Gatto. And that made me realize that I wanted to work with teenage self-directed learners, uh, you know, perhaps for the rest of my life. But that's what inspired me to start my travel company, Unschool Adventures, through which I've taken teenage self-directed learners most of whom identify as unschoolers, but there are some conventional homeschoolers, some who go to alternative schools, some who were even attending public school, and they took six weeks off to come traveling with me. That's so awesome. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've gotten to take them on, on multi-week adventures all around the world and on programs in the United States too. And um, I've learned a lot from those teenagers, and a lot of that has uh, influenced what I've written, uh, the books that you mentioned, which are about how you go to college if you don't go to high school, 
what you could do if you choose not to go to college, and then what self-directed learning looks like, the stories um, uh, that illustrate self-directed learning. That was my third book. Okay. And maybe I just wanted to ask you, and if you could touch on this briefly, what about those kids that you encountered encouraged you or inspired you to want to continue working with self-directed teenagers and supporting self-directed learning? That's a great question. I think they had so much experience saying yes to to opportunities in their life, to, to opting in. They mm-hmm. didn't have a history of being coerced into different situations. And that means that when they decided they wanted to do something, they really wanted to do it. They fully bought in. And if that was true of, of every public school classroom, then the, the issues of, of public school classrooms, I think, would, would rapidly diminish. If that was true of, of all these different situations in life, if people actively consented to the different educational environments um, or even the work environments that they're going into, then uh, they, <laughs> people wouldn't be so miserable. And so I, essentially I was working with happy, engaged teenagers and that was just this this huge breath of fresh air and i was really excited to work with this demographic of teenagers it was it was not something i dreaded it, it was something i looked forward to and so it it gave me a meaningful and satisfying career and 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 that made me a better leader for these groups of teens it was synergistic hmm um you know it that the one sentence just actually stuck out to me you we're working with happy, engaged teenagers, and that was a breath of fresh air. That's right. And, and these same teenagers, if I was a public school educator, most likely would not have been happy or engaged. They would have been the, the surly or disruptive or, uh, you know, doesn't even respond when you call on them type teenagers. But because they've been, uh, you know, raised in this environment of self-direction and unschooling and freedom and responsibility... Um, I really believe that that has made a difference in their lives. And that's what's given me so much faith that this is a field uh, worth working in. Uh, it's I certainly don't do it for the money, Robin. <laughs> yeah, no, self-direct. It's not a lucrative, uh, big lucrative industry <laughs> right now. Yeah. <laughs> or ever. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, talking about this, and I know you had also mentioned some of the issues of public school that had come up. And, you know, before I was an asshole, what issues have you seen in public school? But I think instead, let's talk about your new book, because I think we'll cover all of those questions mm-hmm. in that. And that's what you have now. It is called, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? <laughs> the Case for Helping Them Leave, Chart Their Own Paths, and Prepare for Adulthood at Their Own Pace. And I had said to you before that this is quite the timing to release this book, but I want to know what inspired, I know you didn't, you couldn't foresee the time we're in now with COVID. I know that. And with schools being shut down and people trying to recreate school from home or learning from home like they never had in mass numbers before. But what inspires you to write this book? Well, I feel like the burden of proof has always been on those who take the alternative path. Um, if you choose to send your kid to a radical alternative school, if you choose to homeschool them or unschool them, you'll be met with these curious looks or straight up resistance sometimes. And they say, why are you doing that? Um, and I really think that the burden of proof should fall and will increasingly fall as time goes on, on those who are choosing to send their kids to conventional school, if conventional school is clearly not working. 
for their kids. As I say in the book, many different ways, conventional school, I, I do believe, does work for some kids or perhaps even many kids. Uh, kids who are engaged, kids who are not bored, kids who don't feel large amounts of stress from the demands of school, who find a, a strong peer community and nurturing adults there who are you know, would actively choose their classes and extracurriculars if given the chance to opt out. I do believe these kids exist. Uh, but there are so many more kids who are, are just clearly not thriving in school. And so I, I wrote this book for parents. My previous books, I, I wrote my first one for teenagers. I wrote my second one for college-age young people. The third one was an all-ages book. And this one, I finally come to accept my audience, which is which is parents and honestly, mostly moms. Those are the, the people who find my books and then pass them on to their kids. And so I, I'm writing for my audience and I'm trying to say, uh, if your kid is not thriving in school, you should just assume that looking for an alternative is the right thing to do, or at least exploring them. Not assume that conventional school is, is the only way, the right way, and that your kid is somehow screwed up if they're not uh, thriving there. Hmm. Okay. So is that part of the reason why you know, I, had, I had also, I had asked you, I know I sent the question, why do you say this is not a book about how to reform the education system? Is it because you still feel that there is validity in the present education system, that there are kids that are still thriving and that it is still working for some? You're just really speaking to those that it is not working for and showing that there are other options? Yeah, that's correct. I'm just writing for those who are pretty clear that it's not working for them. And also, I'm not smart enough to write a book about reforming the public education system. I don't know if anyone <laughs> is. That's a beast of a problem, and uh -huh. I'm glad that people are working on it. Uh, what I write in the introduction in the book is that um, the public education system today serves many important functions. And, and mm -hmm. at its core, it is free child care for many families, and it is also social services for many families. And these are sort of hard-won uh, developments and rights that have come with you know the, the progress of the 20th century. And I don't think that we should shut down all public schools. Uh, I'm kind of more with Peter Gray when I say public schools could do much better if they were reformed in the direction of libraries or resource centers, where there is still you know an opportunity for a, a young person who doesn't have a great home life to come and feel safe and secure and get a warm meal. This is the sort of social service function. And it's there's still a place where kids can go during the day when their parents need to work. That's something our society has not figured out yet. What to do with young people if we don't want them to be working because child labor is, is anathema to us. Uh, and if there's not enough jobs for them to, to reasonably do, if we're in an advanced economy with mostly knowledge work, um, th there is a lack of jobs for 13-year-olds or for 7-year-olds to perform. And so we just haven't figured that out yet. And, and that's another big reason why public schools uh, need to continue to exist. Uh, but that's why I'm not writing about public education. It's, it's too big. It's too daunting. I don't know enough about it. What I do know is I know a lot about the families and the young people for whom school is clearly not working and, and what else you can do. Hmm. You know, you say that so tactfully and factually, um, you know, the 
the source of the public schools being a source of child care, uh, as well as social services and huge employer as well. But I know sometimes I've said that and there's kind of that cringe, <laughs> you know, the shoulders go up and there's a bit of the defense of like, no, it's not. It, we're there to educate the kids or to provide these meaningful learning circumstances for the kids or, you know, it's there's still a little bit of a sore spot when we say it's a child, you know, child care services. <laughs> I agree. I mean, public education, uh, a public school system that works for all is a beautiful vision. It's something that almost everyone buys into as a public good. It's, it's a legitimate place for tax dollars to go. And it's an idea that's just sticky. And I think it's going to be with us for a long time. But I, I think it's also very easy for adults to hold on to this lofty ideal when they never set foot in a K through 12 classroom again once they leave. And why don't mm -hmm. they? Why, you know, people will go back to their maybe high school reunions, but, uh, and maybe you'll go back and visit the college you went to, but nobody ever pines after uh, the, the time they spent in classrooms. Maybe the time they spent goofing around with friends or doing extracurriculars, but the core function of K through 12 school is, is fundamentally more or less a waste of time. Every once in a while, there's a happy exception to that, but nobody wants to go back and relive those hours in the classroom. Nobody that I've met, at least. And that should tell us something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> totally. I'm just thinking about when we go back to my hometown and, you know, my kids are, we, we had talked about next time visiting my old university campus because it's, you know, where I grew up and it was where my mom still lives, but I've never <laughs> talked about visiting my old schools that oh. I went to elementary or high school or junior high because, and we drive by them all the time when we're visiting my mom, but there's never any mention or inclination for that at all. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Very true. So then if we are, you know, we're talking to families and kids where the present schooling system is not happening, it's not working, or they just feel it and they are looking for something else. But, you know, maybe maybe they're just tuning in now and they haven't, they're just learning about all of the alternatives. Maybe with uh, the situation now, they're looking at different options and are just slowly starting to learn more. But you do talk about quite a few of them in the book. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those options that you offer to parents that are trying to do something outside of the box or something different from traditional school with their kids? Mm -hmm. um, I go through the whole spectrum of what I consider the least alternative uh, options to the most alternative options. And so I start with discussing what most people consider alternatives to normal school, which are the progressive schools, Montessori, Waldorf, uh, Reggio. And for some kids, those really do work well. Uh, the trouble is that once you get into the middle school and high school years, the options tend to become pretty thin. And also they start to look a lot like ritzy private schools and have very high tuitions. Mm. And they're just simply outside the realm of affordability for most families. Um, I just discuss virtual and hybrid schools. And um, these might be charter schools. Uh, they, they might be something specific to a school district. It's kind of hard to, to track all the different iterations. There's some really interesting work going on in this realm. And there's a couple programs in Santa Cruz, California that I find especially inspiring. And they're, they're highly flexible. They let you do some courses online at home if you want. And then you can go into physical brick and mortar school to do some courses. You have a, an advisor. Oftentimes you can get public school money to do homeschooling type activities. 
And of course, anytime you're accepting that money, you're signing up to have to play by a certain set of rules and fulfill certain you know, subject requirements. But for many families, that's okay. And it works at, at least for a while. Uh, I talk about homeschooling and, and mostly I end up defending what homeschooling actually is from its many stereotypes. And I pull in a lot of research about homeschooling too. And what the research says is that homeschooling is not going to help your kid, academically speaking, or life outcome speaking, and it's not going to hurt your kid uh, either. Uh, there are some people who think that there's homeschooling research that says that you're more likely to get into college or that you're going to get better test scores if, you're, if you homeschool. That is all deeply flawed research. Uh, they don't compare uh, appropriate uh, samples of, of young people because, for example, uh, a, a lot of homeschoolers do have higher average incomes, and that will affect, for example, their SAT scores. There's a very high correlation between family income and standardized tests. And so um, when the research is done properly, I still think it's, it's good news. Uh, homeschooling is a sort of totally respectable middle path to take. Um, and then I get into the more radical stuff. Uh, there are three popular, um, still not very numerous, but, but increasingly popular models of radical alternative schools. These are Sudbury schools, uh, agile learning centers, and liberated learners centers. And some of these are technically schools, like for example, a Sudbury school is registered as a private school. Uh, it's a form of a democratic free school. And then other things like some agile learning centers or all of the liberated learner centers, they're not schools. They say, we are resource centers and you should be registered as a homeschooler with your local state authority. And then think of us like a, a club or like a YMCA. We're here for you, but we, we are not fundamentally responsible for your kid's education. That responsibility lies with the family and with the child. Okay. And then finally, like, like village home. I, I just actually, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah. actually met Lori. So that, that was, oh, it was Lori. nice to see her reference in the book too. <laughs> Lori, yeah, Lori yeah. Walker is a wonderful yes. and inspiring figure and village home. I mentioned that in my book too. It's very unique. You know, they, they have built a community college for homeschoolers and, Something like that doesn't really exist anywhere else in, in the country. I, a few people are trying to replicate her model, I believe. But uh, yeah, that's another example. Uh, Village Home is the only organization that has scaled up to a very large size. Most of these alternative schools are very small. Like they'll max out at 150 people. Village Home has something like 1,000 students who are yeah. enrolled. They're not all on campus at the same time. But uh, yeah, very inspiring model. And finally, I, I talk a lot about unschooling because those are the waters that I have swam in more or less for the past <laughs> 15 years. And um, I try to, to paint a really broad definition of unschooling. And to paraphrase John Holt, unschooling is about giving your kids as much freedom as you can bear. And I think those final words are really crucial, as much as you can bear. Um, some families, I think, think associate unschooling with complete and an unfettered freedom and that's not quite right i think that a.s neal who started the Summerhill school really nailed this concept when he said freedom not license um mm -hmm. your freedom to do what you want kind of ends at my nose right uh, <laughs> you don't have license to do whatever you want in this world and so um you need to as a parent uh, feel comfortable with the amount of freedom 
that you're giving your kid. And in the beginning, that might be a, a fairly limited amount of freedom. But if you go too overboard, uh, you might kind of, the pendulum might swing in the other direction. And then you'll say, ah, oh, this unschooling thing is, is totally messed up. And I, uh, it's not going to work. I'm sending my, back, my kids back to school, whether they like it or not. I like actually how you talk about, you break it down, you give the different tools and almost in a gradient, <laughs> you know, you start yeah. from progressive schools and then to virtual hybrid and then to homeschooling. But you also talk about, you know, the pros and cons that it's not just, you know, here you go. If you go down the alternative path, everything will be solved. Life will oh, be perfect yeah. and it's going to be good from now on. <laughs> good job. <laughs> and it's, it's so not true. And and, and that's what a lot of us want to believe, that we can find this one educational system or solution that will be the perfect fit for our kids. And that's just a myth. It's almost a, a religious uh, style of belief. Um, it's, you're going to find something, hopefully, that works for your kids for a while. In the book, mm -hmm. I write about how what really happens in my experience is that young people, their needs change. Uh, and as they develop, as, uh, as perhaps certain programs open or close in your local area, even as other kids enter or depart your local community, that can make a really big difference. And so whenever you think you found a solution, you know, uh, this private school is the solution, this, this public uh, charter program is the solution, the homeschooling is the, is the solution, just add these two words uh, to the end of your sentence, for now. Right. It's, it's going to change. And so... Yeah, I try to present a really non-dogmatic uh, overview of all the different options in this book. Yeah, you do. And it's refreshing. And I and I know just from personal experience how easy it is to become, I think that's a good term, dogmatic. It, you know, it almost becomes like a comparative, I know you talk about in the book, university, um, the belief of, you know, that being like a religion, right? But yeah. I think as well that the alternative path can almost have religious-like significance sometimes too, if you get too buried deep and down, deep down <laughs> into those convictions, right? That's right. We, we are fundamentally religious creatures. I, I believe yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I've been actually reading more about Joseph Campbell during these right. times at home right now. And yeah, it's actually great. <laughs> I, you know, it's a great time to read a lot about uh, his beliefs <laughs> in, you know, mythology and, uh, you know, that story right. and all of, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, the, the power it's... the power of myth is is prevalent. We want to believe in the myth of the public school. We want to yes. believe in the myth of unschooling or insert your your favorite educational trend here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's true. It, and just like our children, development, like our children are not five years old forever. They're not mm -hmm. 10 years old forever. They're not teenagers forever. They're changing constantly every year. You know, sometimes even this within this year so far, I'm like, my kids are told, and especially with the experiences, they're, you know, things change for them. They're different. They, their needs change. So mm -hmm. I know our experience has looked very, very different throughout the years as they have changed and uh, their experiences have evolved as well. So yeah, yeah. got to be on our toes. <laughs> so, so I wonder as well, you know, this also brings something into the mix of everything and um, parenting, right? It's, it's about being a parent. I think that's the thing you want 
the best for your kid. You want to be the best parent or a good parent, provide them with the opportunities so that they have, you know, they're successful, however you want to define that for yourself, or they have all the opportunities that everyone else is afforded. And a lot of times your style of parenting, your method of parenting, your goals in parenting really come into play when, um, I mean, all the time, but especially if they are doing something like homeschooling or unschooling when they're at home, when they're with you a lot, or, you know, when that changes, when they're not away for most of the day at school. Um, And you do talk about this. So you talk about the whole idea of nature versus nurture in your book and how much influence we have as parents. (laughs) That's right. And, And I started off with a big fat disclaimer, which is that I am not a parent. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, but I have spent about 15 years serving the sort of crazy adventurous uncle role to many other people's children between ages 11 and 19. And so I feel like I, I have garnered a certain amount of experience and I have a certain level of objectivity um, to, to speak on, on some parenting matters. But really, uh, even that was not enough for me. I went and I read a whole bunch of books in the parenting literature, the sort of academic literature. And by far the most compelling one for me was The Nurture Assumption by Judith Rich Harris. And she dove into the literature about nature versus nurture, genetics versus environment in a very deep and a very unique way. And as a sort of rogue scholar, she got um, acknowledged for her work by the mainstream establishment, which is a very difficult thing to do. And her basic message was, so, we know from, from lots and lots of science that the way that a young person develops in the long run is about 50% due to genetic influences and 50% due to environmental influences. But most of us assume that the most significant environmental influence is parents, is the active nurturing and parenting that goes on when someone is young. And Judith Rich Harris said, actually, based on all this research, The genetics part is true, and it's often more powerful than we like to admit. And the environment part is true, but it's not parental nurture. It's peer groups. And she developed something called group socialization theory and and made a a very strong argument. It's a very difficult thing to prove, of course, uh, but she made an extremely solid argument for the the much more significant influence of peers than parents. And and what that means, uh, at the end of the day, is that when parents think that they are actively shaping their kids, uh, they're often uh, not correct in that assumption. They are either seeing their own genes expressed through their children. For example, uh, my dad is an entrepreneur, and he has been for much of his life. Uh, I am an entrepreneur, and I have been for much of my life. Did my dad actively nurture and instill these entrepreneurial values into me? Or is there some sort of measurable personality trait or, for example, a a tolerance for risk that was merely passed on to me through through the fact that he is 50% of my DNA? Well, uh, that's a question that can be answered by by close uh, scientific research. And so, yeah, Judith Rich Harris said, if you are trying to be a, a highly controlling micromanaging parent. I think it's the idea is best expressed through the, the book um, written by Amy Chua, the hymn of, oh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a, a very good distilled version of of what sociologists call intensive parenting, right. and and this is what has come to predominate the parenting landscape in the 21st century. And there's many different reasons for this. Uh, there's uh, the, just the simple fact that people are having fewer and fewer kids as, as society becomes more prosperous. Uh, there were these high-profile abductions in the 1980s that generated some, some stranger danger fear. There's brain plasticity research. Uh, all these, these different reasons have conspired to make uh, parents much more anxious. This has been a well-documented trend. And so intensive parenting, it, it's like we don't even notice it. It's just automatic. Of course, you are going to, to closely monitor and supervise and track the whereabouts of your kids. Uh, of course, you're going to essentially manage them as if they were your employee when we're talking about where to go to college, how to apply to college. Uh, and then once they go to college, increasingly parents are there, you know, every day <laughs> texting and calling their kids. And if there's a problem with the class or a professor, the parent intervenes. I mean, this is so radically different from just 50 years ago. I was in the life 50 years ago, but I've read enough to know that in the 1970s, things were genuinely different on this front. And so there mm -hmm. has been rapid societal change and rapid change in the norms around parenting. And, um, and I think this has contributed to a lot of, of school-related anxiety. Just kids are growing up in a pressure cooker where it's high stress at home, it's high stress uh, at school. And this is why, I think, and this is why Peter Gray thinks, this is why many other professionals think that uh, there is a mental health crisis that, that is brewing, that has been brewing for a couple decades now among uh, young people, especially among adolescents. And it's not just about social media and screen time. Uh, it's not just about more competitive uh, economic uh, you know, post-recession type stuff. I think it's it's directly related to parenting. Hmm. Yeah, there is pressure, and and I and I see that parents have pressure on their kids, pressure to the school to make sure that their kids are, you know, getting what they think they need or should be getting. Then on administration, the community, everything, sports, all the organized activities from sun up to sundown, pretty well, and on and on and on from their coaches and you name it, absolutely. And, and parents really, you know, how do I say this? Like really living your life through your children, but in yeah. extreme ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the right way to say it. And this is what makes taking an alternative educational path feel so perilous. I mean, first of all, there's just basic human groupish nature where we're, it's a a fearful thing to do something outside the norm. And then you add on to that this, um, this expectation of what a, a sociologist uh, calls parental determinism. The fact that if anything really good is going to happen in your kid's life, it's to your credit as a parent. You helped make that happen. But on the, the flip side of that, if anything really bad happens in your kid's life, it's, to, it's also to your credit. It's, it's your responsibility. <laughs> and so there's all this pressure on parents. Like, I, I do my best uh, to never, ever blame parents for the, the kind of situation that we find ourselves in now because it's a strong cultural tide that's drawing everyone out into the, this, this, these crazy waters of intensive parenting. But this is what stops a lot of parents from seeing that their kids are not thriving in school 
and, and then saying, okay, let's look for an alternative. This is why I felt it was absolutely vital to include um, a chapter about parenting and about intensive parenting uh, and provide a lot of, of, I'd say, pretty hard-hitting scientific arguments uh, against that assumption in this book. Right. Okay. So let's talk about maybe um, confronting one of those worries, too, that comes up that I think for parents, and, and this is a society pressure as well, but parents, I think, really put it on. And it comes up a lot, especially I get a lot of the same question from listeners mm-hmm. and homeschoolers is the whole thing of, you know, alternative paths are great when my kids are young especially when they're younger and elementary school. But once they get into that teenage age, high school, you know, they really need to be preparing for something like college and university. And how is that going to happen if they are, you know, self-directed learning and they are not doing the required courses they need for university? They are not doing all the things they need to do to prepare. They might not be getting a high school diploma from an accredited school or wherever you are, how can parents reconcile that then? Because that is a big thing of, you know, because of my choice, my child may not have this opportunity that will take them farther into the future. Mm-hmm. Well, they will always have the opportunity, but they will not be on track. Those two words, so dangerous. Is my kid on track? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what goes on tracks? Trains? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we want to imagine that, that the education system runs like the, like Swiss trains, that there are clear stops, there are clear speeds, there are clear metrics and, and waypoints. And this is just a system that we have fabricated. The idea that in ninth grade, you're supposed to be learning these things, in 10th grade, these things, someone just came up with that. And that is what parents need to unlearn. That's how they need to de-school themselves, is to imagine that, that human development can be ordered so precisely. That, that's just wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. once, once we look at how adults develop, about how quickly someone's career takes off, or how someone struggles to, to maintain relationships, it's clear that there's such a diversity in human experiences and and human development, and, and sometimes somebody might be ready to take the next step, but uh, they're missing one key ingredient in their life. And then we throw all of that practical wisdom out the window when we think about kids and school and education. And so will the doors to college and career still be open for, let's say, an unschooler who chooses not to do anything that looks vaguely academic for a number of years, does not seem to be on track to being ready to take the SAT at age 17. Will those doors still be open? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be closed. Yes, your kid's timeline is going to look different from other kids' timelines. Uh, and the, with the unschoolers and the other self-directed learners who I've worked with, uh, there are some who do proceed straight to college at age 18, but they are really in the minority. There are others who are starting college-level work, often through community college, at a younger age, at age 17, 16, 15, 14. And then yet others are not even thinking about academic type stuff or serious job type stuff until they're 19 or 20 or 21. There is not some epidemic of self-directed learners who are complete failures to launch and who just <laughs> sit at home in their parents' basement, you know, playing Fortnite, rubbing flaming hot Cheeto dust off of their t-shirts. 
you know, I maybe even walking zombies all around. They're like, oh, here come yeah. these self-directed learners. Oh, oh no. <laughs> that's right. They're uneducated. They were never coerced into learning algebra by their parents. So there's no way they could ever develop into complete human beings. Like, okay, sure. Theoretically, there could be some epidemic of that, but I feel like I would have heard whispers of it by this point. <laughs> really what happens is um, a, a parent is investing in building up trust with their kid. And sometimes that can happen very quickly. Other, time, other times it takes years. You are undoing all sorts of, of relationship issues. You are undoing uh, issues with authority, relationship to school and formal education. And, and for the kids who really struggle with that, it takes a lot of time to rebuild that trust. And, and that's what you're doing when you are unschooling or you are otherwise supporting your kid as a self-directed learner if you're sending them to a Sudbury school where they have complete carte blanche to do whatever they want all day. Um, you are building up that trust and you are letting the kid exercise their muscles of intrinsic motivation. And mm. that those muscles cannot be exercised if you are in a system of, of heavy extrinsic motivators, of grades, of gold stars, of threats and detentions, all that stuff that we, we use to push and pull kids around in the formal education system. That is just delaying uh, many young people's development of an authentic system of intrinsic motivation. Really, it, it's self-knowledge that we are stealing from kids by keeping them in, in a formal school system where they're not thriving. And self-knowledge is the gift that we give when we really encourage their self-direction. We have a more genuine one-on-one -on -one relationship with kids instead of you know, playing this role of homework cop and enforcer and you know, nagging, well, if you don't do well on this test, then you won't get into this, and then you won't go to college, and then you won't have a satisfying career, and then you'll be a, a, a failure. I mean, that's the message that we're sending to kids. It's a very fear-based message, and it's not a good way, I think, to educate a citizenry or any young person. Yeah, no. And, but the scary, you know, the fear-based messages are all around, and that's they work. exactly... They yeah, work. they work. Yeah. And it's just like we've learned to bring them into our home and just reinforce all those fear-based messages outside of the in the world that are around us too. It's just a repetitive cycle in so many ways. And that's what's going on right now with the coronavirus uh, school at home. Uh, yes. And, and this is why I think people say, maybe this is a great moment for homeschooling. Maybe more people will homeschool. I am... I am skeptical about that, honestly. I am agnostic on this subject right now. Okay, so because, tell me more about this. Why are you agnostic oh, about this? Why are you we're, using, on this? we're using the term homeschooling. Like I see this in major media publications, mm -hmm. the, the worldwide experiment in homeschooling. This is not homeschooling. This is remote schooling. This is, this is like the worst version of homeschooling that I can think <laughs> of because the parents don't have control. The kids don't have control. The parents are in this awkward situation uh, where they are stressed out themselves. They're not able to be their, their best selves. And really, it's still school. It's still a conventional school. Uh, and, and so this is really school at home. And uh, homeschoolers, I've seen many homeschoolers post stuff on social media saying, for the record, we are not homeschooling right now. Because for us, homeschooling means park days, museums, libraries, field trips, hanging out with with you know, groups of other kids, homeschool co-ops, etc. And so no one is homeschooling right now. That's the truth, Robin. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree. That on a, a good note, too, I also hear of some parents who have said to me, you know, I before I was too afraid to try something different. Yeah. I didn't think I could. But right now that I am, you know, I don't, I, well, we're literally forced into it. Yeah. Uh, we have the time and the space and we've been enjoying it. I, you know, I think I am going to look at something different now. Yeah. Or, you know, I had a parent say to me, I've never had my child thrive as much as they have these last few months at home. Wow. And, That's and wonderful. I think the best, it is. Yeah, it is. But on the other hand, I also have had some parents say, I cannot wait until school starts again. You know, <laughs> I've just got to get them the hell out of here right now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I do have some hope also. Um, I think that there will be some small percentage of families, uh, maybe like the one you just mentioned, where the kid genuinely felt like they were doing better at home. And, and maybe they're in a lucky situation because maybe school has just been straight up canceled or maybe the schoolwork that they have to do is more results-based instead of seat time-based. And so a kid can just get through the stuff and then essentially be an unschooler for the rest of the day. That seems like the ideal situation. Um, one other thing that I think might be going on is that now parents are getting a peek into what school life is like for their kids. Yes. And many of them might be remembering what it was like for themselves, or maybe, you know, 30 years have gone by and they're like, oh, this is not how I imagined school to be. And I think there might be some parents seeing that there's a lot of wasted time. There's a lot of busy work, uh, that the amount of actual kind of engaged contact time between students and teachers is, is pretty minimal. And, and so maybe that will be some healthy disillusionment that leads to a search for alternatives. Yeah, I, I do see that. And I've been hearing that as well. It's, you know, those reminders, right? And yeah. I think, you know, you had talked about that too. You know, the hard thing sometimes about going on this alternative path is when you feel like you're the only one who's choosing it mm -hmm. and everyone mm -hmm. around you is doing something. It's the herd, you know, the herd mentality, but the same, you're, are you going to step out into the danger? Are you going to leave the circle of the fire at night and who knows what's lurking in those bushes? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that fear, right? The protection of the group. Yeah. Yeah. Great analogy. So now I think, you know, I think Part of what's happened is that there are so many more that are now, I mean, the herd has moved and doing a different thing that maybe it's giving a bit of space for some to do that. But I do see that, that, you know, those fears of, you know, let's admit it, like all of us alternative schoolers are different kind of people in some ways, too, to have to step out of that, you know, yeah. enclosed mm -hmm. circle as well. Yeah, just to take that step uh, requires a certain level of, of risk tolerance, a certain level of privilege, a certain level of just being ready to be weird and different. And mm -hmm. so I, I agree. You've made me a little bit more optimistic through this conversation, Robin, <laughs> that the pandemic right. might lead to positive long-term changes. So thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. We don't know, right? That's the thing. Yeah, we'll one thing what, yeah. One thing we do know for sure is that we have no control, right? And and it's just our own personal mind. That's the only thing that we can really direct. But everything else right now, we'll see. Exactly. We'll if see we can just happens. extend this realization that we, we lack control in the greater world into the realm of parenting, that, then maybe mm -hmm. there'd be some positive uh, effects there too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Cause yeah, we usually try and do the opposite and that's the encouragement is try and control as much as you can so you can control the outcome. And unfortunately mm -hmm. that's our kids <laughs> that yeah. we're doing that with. That's yeah. right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. So um, I'm happy that maybe I'm giving you a bit more of a positive outlook. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very happy about that. And Good. for kids, for kids, I you know, I actually I do want to ask you for you know all the work that you do with self-directed teenagers and young people. For those maybe right now that are at home, or for those parents that are listening that have kids that are teens or early teens, do you have? And I and I understand it's hard when you're coming from a structure that's you know has a lot of control, and maybe into a you know at home where you feel things are out of control. It, there's a lot of adjustments happening as well. There's a lot of, uh, you have to give a lot of space and, you know, the whole trusting takes time too, right? But is there something that maybe you would suggest for young people or teens at home right now that maybe are a little bit uncertain, that they see what's been happening, they have been happy at home, maybe they have had a little bit more time to explore things that they want to do and, and they're not quite ready to return to school? Are there any things that they can do right now to maybe help them along and or help their kids along and be more of a self-directed learner and supporting mm -hmm. self-directed learning? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, first of all, pick up a copy of Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? Put it on there your parents' yeah. uh, nightstand. <laughs> yes. Uh, I would say uh, it helps to take baby steps in the beginning. So if you are a parent who's seen your teenager maybe chirp up uh, a bit, brighten uh, a bit in this natural experiment that's going on, or if you are a teenager yourself, um, just look at, at what's different. Like, how are you actually spending your time differently now than you were in school? And my guess is that uh, the teenager is probably spending her time doing more activities where she feels a sense of control. Also, activities that are probably game-like. And by game-like, um, I borrow the definition of Jane McGonigal, who wrote the wonderful book, Reality is Broken, that I, I reference in my book. And she defines a game as something that has a clear goal, uh, clear rules, clear feedback, and consistent feedback. And then finally, uh, it's a voluntary thing that you're doing. And so golf is a game because you have a clear goal. You want to put the ball in the hole. You have uh, clear rules uh, that limit your ability to do that. So you can't just you know, walk your ball to the, <laughs> the final hole and put it in. That's against the rules. <laughs> you have clear feedback. Uh, you know how far you are from your target. And then finally, uh, golf is a game that people only do voluntarily. If golf was made mandatory, we would no longer consider it a game. It would just be another sort of assignment. So um, those four conditions, I believe, are what... Uh, often demarcate enjoyable growth activities for teenagers from um, stuff that's just going to be left in the waste bin, often school-type stuff. And so this is why kids love band. This is why they love um, you know, mock trial or ro robotics team, because there's often very clear goals. Uh, kids are opting into this. And it's the same reason that I think really excellent video games or computer games often a hit with kids. This is why Fortnite is actually a wonderful game. I've only played Fortnite a little bit because my intensive gaming phase is long behind me. <laughs> but I, I've played enough and I've read enough about it to know that uh, it's a highly social game where kids are on a team trying to, to build something, trying to achieve a goal. And yes, there is a competitive aspect to it. 
but um, you know, they are learning when they are playing that game. Mm -hmm. They are growing. They are problem solving. Um, I played a lot of games when I was younger. I had a surprising amount of freedom to play video games, arcade games, computer games. And I learned a lot from those games. And I think ultimately the thing that I was learning was how to voluntarily undertake a, a hard challenge and how to be self-directed, how to be self-motivated in the face of, of great difficulty. That, that's what was going on for me with computer games, for example. As soon as a computer game got easy, as soon as I kind of figured out how to play it well, then I was bored with it and I moved on to another one. You know, when a kid plays World of Warcraft and you finish one of the quests, you are not rewarded with the end of the game. You are rewarded with a more difficult quest. Right. And, and that is a model for life right there. We want kids who are excited to do hard things, to undertake challenges, um, and not just kids who are going to do whatever they're told, sort of like mindless automatons. And so young people, especially teenagers, that's my area of expertise, you know, look closely at what motivates and engages you. And I suspect that it's going to have some of those game-like characteristics. And so the next question you can ask after that is, what if I started making these kinds of activities my primary role instead of my secondary role? And what if I made the other stuff, the hoop jumping, the credentialing, uh, the, the signaling that we do when we, whenever we're trying to get you know, a degree or a diploma or pass a standardized test. What if that you know, was not necessarily cut out from your life, but just relegated to uh, the second place of importance in your life? That would be a good place to start right now if, if you're feeling like the pandemic is not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Those are good words of advice. Really, really good words of advice. And I agree. I, I love Fortnite. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic game. I'm not the best player. You, you can ask my kids. They'll let you know. It's extremely hard. I always encourage parents to play, you know, play it with their kids if they're not so certain about their kids playing it because I'm sure they'll get on and they'll barely make it down to you know when you fly it like yeah I don't yeah, yeah you're parachuting down That's yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and I, I love watching my kids play it though because it's exactly what you explained the you know those four steps I think Jane McGonagall she first had a, a TED talk didn't she before she wrote her book is that right on on game like yeah and the clear goals the clear rules the feedback and that it's voluntary and I remember Peter Gray talks about that with play, free play um, for kids is that the biggest thing is that it's voluntary. You're volunteering, you're, 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 you're there, you're volunteering to be there and you can opt out, you can um, not play or you can play and that brings a whole different aspect into it as well. A whole different, uh, yeah, motivation, right? For sure. Yeah. Peter Gray makes an excellent observation that uh, modern play is often conflated with organized sports, which is really a parent-directed activity. And when he talks about play, he's talking about the play more of his childhood, you know, anywhere from the, the 1950s to the 1980s, where it really was pretty unmonitored and free, and you, you opt in, and, and, and you're navigating all these, these social rules and social norms, and there's so much learning and growth that's going on there. And that just doesn't happen in the same way with modern forms of play dates and organized sports. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which is 
also ironic in the way that I know so many employers, and I think in some ways, some universities now, depending on where you go, are, are looking for uh, kids who, or young people who are able to utilize and have those characteristics, not necessarily ones who can study really well so that they get, get a good mark on an exam and then regurgitate things back to you and then just wait to be told something or wait to be told what to do. Yeah, and it's almost a, a truism now to say that we need creative problem solvers, but creative problem solvers are, are, are not developed uh, in the, the crucible of, of standardized test taking. It, right. They're just completely different realms of, of thought. Yeah, yeah, they are, absolutely. It, it, when you have space to, when you're able to exercise that muscle, when, you're, when you uh, haven't been the square peg pounded into the round hole, over time and uh, your edges haven't been blunted and smoothed over so you can fit into that. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a big difference for sure. So I know we are also getting to our time here and, but, you know, before we close up, I wanted to ask, is there anything else to, well, I know there's so much more I could ask you as well that we could go (laughs) into, but is there anything else too that before you leave that you felt was very important to share? I think that um, this is a unique moment, the whole pandemic coronavirus situation. But when I was writing this book in 2019, none of this was was even a remote possibility in my mind. And and still the the threat of of kids wasting their the precious time of their lives in school still felt uh, paramount to me. Like it felt, and it continues to feel like a very serious threat, both on an individual level, a family level, and a societal level. And so even if all this this forced homeschooling stuff uh, you know, doesn't speak to you, look at how your kid acts in school. You know, have a genuine conversation with them. Uh, sometimes for some kids, conventional school is the right choice, or at least it's the right choice within the, the realm of, of feasible options for your family at this moment. And, and that's fine. But if there are other options and if your kid is clearly struggling, like we don't need a pandemic to tell us that, that we should be looking for alternatives. And mm. it's the best thing to do in the short term and it's the best thing to do in the long term. And just a little bit of reading and research will make that evident. You're not screwing your kid up by letting them, by supporting them, uh, leaving conventional education. Hmm. That's right. That's right. And there, I think the community is growing as well. There is more and more support out there, There especially in these last few years. Yeah. And we are an extremely lucky and privileged country to have such a big community of homeschoolers and unschoolers, to have so many alternative school options. Um, Homeschooling is legal in, in some other countries, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, but Canada, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and the the communities uh, outside of North America tend to be quite small, though, and that's a challenging thing because it makes it much more difficult to find other flesh and blood uh, homeschoolers, non-schoolers, uh, or decent alternative schools in your local area. And then in some countries, like in uh, in Germany and many of the other European countries, many uh, Latin American countries. Homeschooling is just essentially banned, uh, or it's mm-hmm. it's so 
uh, it's such a tiny movement that it might as well not exist. And, and so we really have it pretty easy here in the United States and in Canada. We have lots of different ways to, um, for a non-traditionally educated young person to transition into higher education and into careers uh, that are already established and, and other countries lack those. And so we, we don't even have it that hard is what I'm saying. Like th there are opportunities at the doorstep here if your kid is not thriving in public school. Yeah, yeah, there are many, many opportunities. That's right. All right. Well, I want to, and I think a great opportunity is to read your book as well. Why are you still sending your kids to school? The case for helping them leave, chart their own paths, and prepare for adulthood at their own pace. Uh, where else can we reach you or find out more about you uh, if we uh, would like to do that after listening to your episode? Visit my website, BlakeBowles, B-O-L-E-S dot com, and that's where you'll find my writing, my podcast, which is called Off Trail Learning my monthly newsletter, the funny videos that I produced, and other little side projects that I'm working on. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm connecting European and North American teenagers over Zoom right now to try to foster like cross-cultural connections because everyone's stuck yes. at home anyways. Let's do something fun in the meanwhile. Yeah. I think I saw that actually. I think I saw you posting posting that. I wasn't sure if it was just for your like for unschooling community or self directed learners. That for you self directed learners, before. but but that's a, a pretty wide umbrella. And and no, I've actually had mostly had teenagers signing up who I've never met before. So it's a real pleasure. Awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Okay, thank you so much, Blake. Uh, you are always <laughs> you're wonderful to chat with and speak to and. So well spoken and have a wealth of knowledge. And I know many who have said that, you know, after hearing you, they usually turn to your books and information for their kids that are entering teenagehood or young adulthood. So you're definitely the go to person for sure in that uh, area. Uh, thank you for the kind words, Robin. And thank you for being an excellent interviewer and asking all the right questions. <laughs> let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com, or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com. Mm -hmm.